The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at what's moving tech stocks. My guest is Eric Savitz, Barron's Associate Editor, who covers the technology sector from Silicon Valley. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for joining today's call. Glad to be here, Lauren. Thanks for having me back. A pleasure. So it was good to see the NASDAQ rebounding just a little bit this morning after after a string of losses in the past few days. I think the rebound is over by now. Stocks are heading down again. But let's start with the stock market. What do you make of the NASDAQ's rally this year? The index is up almost 10%, yet earnings growth has been pretty paltry for the big tech companies. How do you explain the rally? And more important, do you think it's going to continue? Yeah, I think that this is, in a sense, the same, uh, another chapter in what is the same story from last year. And if you think about the downturn in technology stocks in 2022, this was largely a move tied to the Fed and interest rates, right? So, of course, as we all know, the Fed was aggressively raising rates all through last year. Um, Higher rates are generally bad for technology stocks, particularly for ones with high growth and not much in the way of profits, and many stocks uh, took a uh, took a dive. Many t- many technology stocks were down. Almost all of them were down. In fact, last year, and I think what's happened as we've come into 2023 is uh, a, a sense that while the Fed is not done, maybe it's almost done. Like maybe we're a, maybe we're a, a couple of uh, uh, interest rate hikes away from the Fed uh, winding up this. Uh, tightening period. And um, and that's actually led to some hope that that might be followed by some some easing, that we might actually later in the year get get some reversal of, of that trend. And I think there was some enthusiasm for that idea in the opening weeks. Um, I think it's waning now, Eric. <laughs> yes. Well, I think what's happened is two things. Uh, one is uh, the, the market is now having some doubts about whether that that uh, scenario plays out that way. There's sort of this notion that, um, particularly because you know we've had such strong numbers on the jobs front, uh, that uh, that that the the Fed might have to raise a little more than maybe people thought, and might keep raising longer, keep higher higher for longer. That's not really good for technology stocks, and um, and and so that's that's kind of caused some reversal here. And earnings, as you say, have been kind of punk, right? I mean the 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 large cap companies are really not growing um, at all. Um, Apple's not growing. Meta's not growing. You know, that's what worries me a lot more than interest rates in some ways. How, yeah. how can these huge, massive growers suddenly stop growing? Yeah. Well, so there's a there's an interesting dynamic, right? Where um, we're still it, these are like ripples from the pandemic, right? So if you think about the pandemic period. A lot of these stocks, particularly ones with a lot of consumer exposure, saw a huge growth in demand, right? Look at PCs. I mean, there were quarters where PC companies were growing 
you know, you have like companies like HP and Dell were suddenly growing 30, 40, 50% a quarter. Um, and that was not sustainable. It was a reflection of everyone being stuck at home. People needed more PCs. You know, their kids were at home. People, there weren't enough PCs per household. And so boom in PC demand and everything tied to that, right? So uh, other stay-at-home things, uh, streaming video and online shopping and, you know, peripherals for your PC and everything else. And, and that's all kind of reversed. PC demand has now fallen back. It looks like, you know, PC demand is going to go back to kind of where it was before the pandemic, which, by the way, was not really growing. Um, smartphone demand seems to have um, um, matured. There's There aren't too many people you can, I, I doubt many listeners know anyone who has a, a desire for a smartphone that doesn't already have one. So like that's mostly a replacement market. So I, I think there's a bunch of places uh, where we've kind of had a reversal of this huge growth period. And now the question is gonna be, where does it settle out? And like what things stick from the pandemic period and what don't? Um, you know, I, it's like, I, there, is there still going to be growth in online commerce? Absolutely. Right. Are we going to see another boom in PC demand? Eh, I don't think so. So there's, there's kind of a mixed picture there. And then there's a lot of cross currents on enterprise spending where on the one hand, um, you know, as we've seen, uh, we'll talk about some more, I think in, in a minute about, uh, people, you know, reducing many companies, particularly many technology companies, uh, focusing on reducing spending, laying off, uh, employees, um, tightening budgets, all that sort of thing. That has an impact on the enterprise and uh, it's showing up in results. Like you've seen things like cloud computing growth while still robust. I mean, they're, they're still reporting strong growth for AWS, Azure, companies like that. Um, it slowed down. The acceleration has slowed down for multiple quarters in a row. And so it's not quite as big a tailwind as it was for the tech industry. And so we're kind of in this spot at the moment where there's not much growth. People are waiting for the next big thing. Um, some of the last next big things haven't really played out. Um, it makes you wonder if we would have had a fang-driven market without COVID. Well, yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, you know, you, you, yeah, I, I do think that the cloud trend is real, and that helps Amazon and Microsoft. And I do think that the, you know, the the long. A long story on e-commerce is positive, and I think that's good for certainly for Amazon and, and kind of indirectly for the ad players too. I mean, that's the you other. Meant, the you way. mentioned the next big thing, though, Eric. So that yeah. gets me to my next topic, and that's sure, AI or artificial intelligence. And yes. that has been one of the hottest themes this year. It's so hot, in fact, that shares of C three AI have doubled simply because of the company's name. <laughs> really amazing. Yeah. So some people have likened ChatGPT, which is an example of this form of AI, to the launch of the iPhone in its importance. Others think generative AI has been oversold. You've written a lot about the topic, did a cover story about it recently. What is your takeaway so far, particularly for Microsoft and Alphabet? Is this really the next new thing or is it something we're overly excited about without merit? Sure. So there's a lot, there's a lot to parse through here. So like, first of all, the notion of artificial intelligence, right? That, that uh, the, the idea that, uh, and machine learning, which is a related concept that that computers can take data and, and come up with insights that like humans might not come up with their own 
um, is it's been around for a long time. I mean, the we've been at this for years. I, I pointed out in that cover story you mentioned that when um, there was there's a search company that people might remember called Ask Jeeves, which had a uh, kind of fun butler uh, kind of uh, sidekick. As it's well, like, you're aging yourself and yes, me. I'm I'm that already reason. aging. So um so so Ask Jeeves went public in 1999, and if you go back and read their IPO uh, prospectus, it talks about doing natural language search on the internet and making it easier to find information. Now, the butler uh, <laughs> didn't really have the tech tools to pull that off, as it turned out, and Ask Jeeves uh, has uh, sort of disappeared from the scene for the most part. Um, but but they had the right idea, and look, and that's what we're seeing with, uh, with ChatGPT and some of the other early implementations here. This is about finding natural language ways to find information. Now, I, I, in, in particular around generative, uh, generative AI. So ChatGPT, for people who haven't tried it, I would certainly encourage them to go do it. It's super interesting to play with. It's, uh, it can both find information and generate new content. You can tell it to write letters. It can generate software code. You can have it write poems like it's it's quite an interesting tool teachers are horrified because you can get it to write like essays about you know term papers and, uh, pride and prejudice or something uh, so like the, it has a lot of capabilities now what chat gpt did not have um and this is important is the ability to surf the internet now like the the model people talk about training models like the data that ai is uh, based on the training model for chat gpt included a lot of the internet except it doesn't access the live internet. It, it's, it's training model uh, sort of stopped in like mid 2021. So like you can't ask ChatGPT to tell you the weather. It, you can look outside and get the weather, but you can't get it from ChatGPT. When you Chat get it from Alexa or Google. Yeah, ChatGPT can't give you sports scores or do anything else about like what's in the news, but it can do a lot of interesting things. Then, now, by the way, let's remember that the company that, created ChatGPT is a startup called OpenAI. OpenAI's primary funder is Microsoft. Microsoft, uh, like about two weeks ago, uh, announced this, uh, this uh, implementation of uh, ChatGPT or some software related to ChatGPT into Microsoft Bing. Now, Microsoft Bing, of course, is, uh, is the very distant second place finisher in the internet search market, which is completely controlled by Google. Google has like 90 plus percent of the market. Bing has like 3% of the market. Bing has been around a long time, like since 2009, but it never has had much market share. There has never really been any real reason to use it. But what's happened since Microsoft made this announcement is this perception that, hmm, maybe Microsoft Bing has something here and it's going to be a challenger um, at the margin for search uh, traffic and the related advertising revenue. That notion, that fear is why Google stock initially sold off. Um, there was there were some other explanations, but the heart of the matter is um, there was a perception that where Google had no competition, now it does. And now there's a lot of problems with this software. Like you get bad answers in some cases. It gives you factual errors. There, there was some weird behavior of the um, of the chat GPT, um, I'm sorry, of the Bing chat um, implementation that cropped up in interactions it had with journalists where it, it was just, a, it was it was a very strange and unsettling experience when you had one of these kinds of interactions. 
They've had to make revisions in the software. But I still think that the bottom line is there's this notion basically where Google had this market to itself and now it doesn't. Uh, so it, it's uh, it, it's how much market thing. share do you think Bing could capture with this? I'm sorry. How much market share do you think Bing could capture to put? A well, so there? think of it this way: um, um, uh, the 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 market is uh, for search related advertising is about two hundred. Um, uh, it's around two hundred um, billion dollars. Um, almost all of that is uh, is one company. Um, so, um, you know, the, um, if you move like 1% of the market, um, you're talking about several billion dollars in revenue. Now it's not quite that simple because there are a couple of other factors. Like one factor is, um, uh, it turns out to do search with this, these tools is a little more complicated and, and technology intensive, more compute intensive. So it's going to cost Google more per search to keep up. Google is working on the same kind of technology. Let's be clear. They've been a pioneer in AI. They've been at this a long time. They have said point blank that they're going to insert this kind of technology into their own searches. Uh, they haven't launched it yet, so we haven't seen it yet. But it's going to cost them extra money. So there's some cost um, related to this. And then the other issue that the street is a little concerned about is that if you're just providing people answers, um, what does that do to the opportunity in advertising? Um, so like if you if you can't um, sell as many ads, that is bad for Google. And it's less problematic for Microsoft, which is not as, as reliant on that business, right? Of course, this is relatively small business for Microsoft. So Microsoft is in a better position here in many ways from a business point of view than Google. We'll see how it plays out. Now, I have to mention, there's another key company here that we have to talk about. Um, which is uh, in the news uh, even today, uh, which is the chip maker NVIDIA. Um, ah, we have a lot of questions from from listeners about NVIDIA. So now's yes. a good time. So here's continue. the thing about NVIDIA. NVIDIA, of course, started its life as a graphics processor company. Uh, they would they showed up in like uh, PCs that wanted to run games and also in game consoles. The the, the their their chips eventually they're these called GPUs, graphics processors. Um, it turns out are really good for certain kinds of computing. They've they've uh, built a pretty substantial business in cloud-related computing. So uh, they they sell um, chips into all the major cloud vendors, um, and these the the cloud vendors are going to play a key role in um, in this AI market, which again requires tremendous computing technology. This is not a place where you know, you're just going to do a startup like two kids in a garage and you're going to build your own like AI inference engine. That's like not happening. So, uh, so yesterday, um, NVIDIA um, reported earnings and um, the earnings were good. But one of the things they talked about in, uh, on the call was that they're making a huge uh, push, an accelerated push into the AI market. And among other things, they're basically gonna build an AI-based computer and host it um, in the cloud to let anyone access it via Amazon Web Services or Azure from, uh, from Microsoft. Um, they are super excited about the opportunity here. Now I will note, uh, to uh, give myself a pat on the back, that we talked about this in the a cover story we did a couple of weeks ago that NVIDIA was a key a key way that people might want to think about playing this. 
people are very excited about this. NVIDIA is up like 12% today um, and largely on the AI news uh, more than the results themselves. Um, this is a big opportunity. And by the way, I will note, it is not the only chip company that plays here. Um, um, at the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, CES in January, um, um, AMD, uh, the CEO of AMD, Lisa Su, talked particularly about this. They announced their own new AI processor. Um, they basically said AI is the future of everything. Um, it's going to apply to all kinds of industries. Um, and again, I think you have to think about, it's not just about like search. Um, it's about um, finding insights in large data sets. And in some ways, it's about making certain kinds of everyday experiences better. I mean, so if you think about um, um, anything you look for on the internet, like let's say you're on uh, you're on Netflix and you're trying to figure out which movie to watch or um, or something like that, or you're or you're a TikTok user and you're you know you're getting thrown uh, you know the, the sent new uh, TikToks all the time. The way they figure out what you might want to watch is based on AI. Um, people have these experiences every day and don't don't think about them. And think about when you when you type a search query into Google and you say um, you start to type a sentence and it tries to complete it for you and give you a bunch of options. That is AI in action, right? It's it's anticipating what you might want. Um, and and so this is this is going to be everywhere. It's in financial services. It's in healthcare. It's in uh, uh, travel and retail. Like it's it's going to be an ingredient brand everywhere. And if, if you can uh, figure out the right ways to take advantage of that, you should make a lot of money. And today, you know, it, the, the, the world has latched on to NVIDIA, but I still think Microsoft is very well positioned here. And honestly, in the long run, so is Alphabet. I mean, uh, you know, the Google parent, while they have some challenges here on the search front, there are still lots of opportunities uh, for them to leverage this technology over time. So we had, we had two questions from listeners that relate exactly to what you're saying. Fred says, isn't the fundamental problem with generative AI that it's not capable of independent thought, but is dependent on the sources it accesses? That would seem to be a big limitation. Um, is he right about yeah, that? I mean, like, so there's, a, there's, there's an ongoing kind of debate in the technology world about this notion of whether the AI is sentient uh, like, you know, which makes it sort of into like a some kind of science fiction monster movie. Um, it, it's not. It's a piece of code. I, I think in some ways, like the whole concept is a little bit done a disservice by its own name. So it's not intelligence in that sense. It's not like, it's not like, um, so like you can say to chat GPT, say, um, write me a poem about the stock market and the style of you know, Dr. Seuss. Um, I've tried that. You get funny results, actually. <laughs> uh, but 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 what you what it's not going to do is just generate that on its own. So it's like it's there's a human interactive piece of it at least for now. Now I think um, a lot of what we're really talking about here, I think, is more accurately described as machine learning. And there there it's like you have you know we, we we're generating huge amounts of data. That's one of the reasons the cloud companies are doing so well is like every day the world generates more and more data and like figuring out ways to get um, uh, like uh, conclusions, uh, yeah, reach, find new ideas in the data uh, 
um, is at the heart of the idea here. And so, um, yeah, I think I would get, I, I, what, I would, what I would strongly suggest is not to get too hung up on some of these shorter term questions around, oh, chat GPT gave me a bad answer on this thing. Because it is true that at some level, it's only as good as the data that underlies it. Um, and, and but the same but, way with people's opinions, though. Yeah. So I, I would, I would, um, I would say that you know that is a partial issue, but um, it's not going to stop uh, any of this from transpiring. So on a more practical basis, Steve asks you about your thoughts on buying and holding Nvidia for the next five years. He notes it's gone up sixty percent year to date. Is that too much? Too fast? Are investors excessively enthused about this stock? Yeah, so far, let's remember it had a terrible year last year, right? So, so it's coming off of a, um, I can't remember, it was down more than half last year. Um, if you look at a, you know, like a, like a, it's it long term chart, the stock peaked about $100 higher than where it currently is. So, you know, so let, you know, all things are relative, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a lot easier to rally 60% if you've dropped 60%. So, uh, so I wouldn't worry about it from that standpoint. I would say it is not a cheap stock. I mean, so statistically, um, you know, this is uh, uh, this doesn't pencil out as a as a low PE or low you know price to sales kind of semiconductor stock. It's probably one of the most expensive semiconductor stocks uh, from that standpoint. I think it's trading about fifteen times sales. I mean, that's just doesn't that's a little that's a lot for a semiconductor company. But I, I think you have to look at them as uh, it's really kind of a, you know, it's a conceptual conceptual bet and you have to look out, you know, a long time period. Um, you know, I I am quite bullish on the long-term story. And there are some other elements to this, by the way. They're also a big player um, in uh, components and software for um, autonomous driving. Um, in fact, I, uh, I was actually at a, an event uh, yesterday that was held by Mercedes-Benz, which is announcing a bunch of new... Um, uh, new things, including an operating system for their cars. And it's kind of built on NVIDIA chips and software. So it's with the way the company keeps reinventing itself. It's pretty remarkable, know. right? I mean, they were, you know, like a fairly mundane sort of, you know, PC um, graphics chip company. And now they're doing lots of different things. And they are in, you know, the buzziest parts of the market. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, uh, leave out, you know, their, their, their automotive exposure. And, and, and I'd, I'd also point out that in many ways, what they're doing in cars is an AI function. This is about, you know, running the software that allows you to do like self, like level three and higher kinds of autonomy in their cars, uh, in, in other people's cars. I, I went on a level three, I'm level three, by the way, is the, the kind of autonomous driving where the driver can periodically take his hands off the wheel, lean back and you know, like watch video. Um, and I had a experience like that yesterday, a test driving, uh, while I was a passenger, I wasn't driving, but, but in a, a Mercedes with level three and it's pretty compelling and it includes NVIDIA uh, chips and software. Fascinating. That's amazing. So leaving NVIDIA for a moment, let's turn to meta platforms, formerly known yeah. as Facebook. The company seems to have taken a page from Twitter's playbook with the launch of a verified user subscription service. So my question for you is, what will Meta Verified, as it's called, mean for Meta's revenue and profits? And what will it mean for Facebook users generally? Yeah, I think, 
I think for most people, it won't mean much. I mean, so just to be clear, Meta is taking a page out of Twitter's playbook. How ironic is that? With right. a verified user program, you know, like in Twitter, it's like the blue check thing, um, which you know some people used to get get for free. I have a blue check, um, and uh, and and so you know, it's, it's supposed to like signify that you are who you say you are, um, and you have to submit. I don't know proof of be you being you or some in some way. Um, that's part of it. The other part of it in 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 uh, in Meta's case is. Um, uh, better access to support, right? Like, so if you've ever had a problem with a Facebook page, uh, let's say someone steals your account or something like that. Good luck reaching a human. Well, you won't. You won't reach someone on the phone. It's it's they do it by design. They have too many. There's too many users. They have the the, the economics doesn't allow that to happen, unless of course you choose to pay eleven ninety nine a month, um, and which is now going to be an option for you. I, I've seen some data from a, from an analyst or two that says that, well, if you if you look at how many people use the verification program at Twitter, or then there's a similar one at um, Snap, um, it's a small fraction of a percent. Uh, I think it's two tenths of a percent of the Twitter users have blue checks um, and pay for those. Checks. But it, it should be a moneymaker because most of that drops to the bottom line. Yeah. So it's like, it's not a huge revenue contribution, but it's, uh, but it's high margin revenue. Um, you know, it could be a few billion dollars, but like, why not do that? And by the way, remember, they're not growing right now at the top line. They, they're, they've got a bunch of different issues. One is, um, you know, the advertising market is currently soft. They have some new competition uh, from TikTok and a few other people. Like Netflix is now selling ads. Amazon has built a very big business selling ads. It's a pretty competitive environment in advertising, and they've lost this ability to target. Uh, given uh, some of the uh, the Apple privacy changes that everyone should be familiar with at this point. So, um, and by the way, let's remember, like the reason Meta stock is doing so much better this year than it was last year was they announced, you know, first they announced like 11,000 layoffs. Then when they announced Q4 results, they announced another round of, um, of spending reductions for this year. And just the other day, uh, there was a story that said there are thousands of more layoffs in the works. Um, they're, they're, if you, it's interesting, if you go back and listen to the, the meta uh, conference call, which is worth doing if people haven't done it before, um, uh, he, you know, Mark Zuckerberg declares this to be the year of efficiency, um, at, at meta. And then he proceeds to use the word efficiency 30 times over the course of the conference call. To um, remind himself to be more efficient. <laughs> yeah, to, to remind that and to remind the street as many times as possible how sensitive he is uh, being to their concern that he's overspending. And of course, the flip side, by the way, of, of being more efficient is figure out more ways to juice the lemon. And he's he's figured out one here. Um, I'm not this sure that the street sees this as a real, you know, uh, seminal moment in the history of the company. They may generate an extra, you know, few percentage points of growth, but every percentage point counts. It's sort of like Amazon Prime. A little bit like that, except that Amazon Prime is actually a big business and a large number of Amazon users use it. I think it's a little more like the Twitter blue check. Um, okay. So, so going back to those layoffs, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think there will be a lot more job cutting in Silicon Valley? It seems to have been in the vanguard of a new employment, or I should say unemployment trend. There's been a rash of companies announcing layoffs. Do you see more coming? Yeah, I'm sure there are more coming. I mean, I, I think that the 
uh, for several reasons. Uh, one is we haven't even had a recession yet. So like now it's certainly true that in some markets, like in PCs, we've had serious downturns, but overall the, the economy has held up pretty well. And so um, there's still plenty of jobs. I mean, even in Silicon Valley, there's still plenty of jobs. <laughs> I don't think we're uh, quite at the stage where uh, things are as bad as they could get. And I, and I also think uh, on the other hand, what we're starting to see, and we, this is true like with the most, most recent news from Meta, is you're starting to see companies do second rounds. Um, that tells you something about the conditions. We just saw this with um, DocuSign, the um, e-signature uh, software company. They laid off about 10% of the workforce, I think in September, and now they're doing another 10%. Um, so there's these companies expanded, in many cases expanded quite dramatically during the pandemic. And it wasn't just like Amazon adding, you know, delivery people and work warehouse workers. A lot of people added capacity, and I would be surprised if we see more cuts. Uh, um, you know, a lot of the big ones have already announced rounds. In some cases, they're pretty small relative to the size of the companies. That's small comfort uh, to the people who are affected by them. But uh, particularly in technical fields, for like engineering jobs, um, there's plenty of people. Uh, who are interested and you know maybe they need to reinvent themselves as you know experts on ai well that's a new field you never know so unfortunately i have left the most complex topic for the end of the call i'm going to ask you to sum it up in two minutes okay and that is the pair of cases before the supreme court this week that could shake up how online platforms function specifically these cases focus on Section 230, a provision of the 1996 Communications Decency Act that protects websites from liability for content made by users. And the Supreme Court has effectively said it is no expert on the internet, but it is an expert on the law and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of these cases. Can you just summarize what's at stake, what it means for investors? Sure, so Section 230 basically uh... Uh, it is a an integral piece of the way that the internet operates because as you say what it what it does basically is it protects companies that um, host content from users and that could be YouTube or social media but it also includes like reviews say so on a site like like a travel site or like be anything. or you know wherever any place that has reviews Amazon um, it protects those websites from being a, sued for those reviews, and B, it gives them the right to also protect them from uh, moderating them. So it, it both says you don't have to take anything down, and it also says, but you can, right? So think of it as a dial where if, if, if it, there's like a moderation dial, and you can set the moderation dial on your website from nothing to aggressive, and no one can sue you for it, right? That's sort of the idea. And, and the reason that's important is like a lot of these sites that have user-generated content. Think about YouTube, where it's like literally like you know it's millions and millions and millions of user-generated hours of video. Um, obviously, you know sites like Twitter and Facebook, um, uh, but again, also all, all these sites that have like deep um, uh, reliance on uh, user reviews, thumbs up, all that stuff. Um, if any of that was subject to uh, uh, litigation. Uh, uh, against the platforms for those things, um, the internet would 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 have to be uh, radically rearranged. Like you couldn't, you can't operate that way. So, but but on, on the other hand, 
Um, there's a lot of political debate about this. On the left, the argument is we're not moderating enough. And on the right, the argument is we're moderating too much, right? So there's a lot of opposition to the current state of affairs. Maybe it says something about Section 230 uh, that's quite upbeat, that they're aided by both sides. Um, uh, 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 but in any case, so there are the, these two cases without getting into all the detail. Basically, there were cases involving the deaths of uh, individuals who were uh, killed in attacks by ISIS, and the litigation involved um, posts on, in one case, YouTube, in another case, Twitter, by terrorists, and so they tried to make a connection between those posts and then these terrorist attacks. And um, and so the, it's been clear for a while that the court has been looking for an excuse to weigh in on Section 230. Justice uh, Thomas, in particular, has been vocal about wanting to make changes in 230. And there, there was a lot of fear going into this week's um, uh, hearings. Um, there were two days, the last two days, not today, but uh, both Tuesday and Wednesday, that those hearings uh, could uh, hint that the court was going to make some radical rewrite of this law that basically undergirds the internet. Now, I listened to a lot of the uh, the the um, testimony on Tuesday. I didn't hear as much of it as uh, uh, as much on Wednesday. But what was clear from Tuesday um, is that the court is feeling a little squeamish about wanting to change Section 230. Um, there was a great quote from um, uh, Justice Kagan, who basically said, look, we're not the nine biggest internet experts, right? Um, right. I, that was stunning. Yeah. So, uh, and, and by the way, um, th this, there was almost a, there, there wasn't that much of a left-right split. There was like, a, there was concern going in that this was like the, the you know, the more right-wing uh, um, piece, uh, members of the court really wanted to make changes. And that did not really come through in the argument. Now, we won't get decisions on uh, on these until June. Uh, we'll get an opinion, presumably. Um, I would say that the uh, the smart money here thinks uh, the court is not going to make any radical changes at this point. However, here's the kicker, right, is there's more to come. Um, th this case um, is a little bit of a test case. This is the first time the court has ever taken on an issue involving Section 230. That's never happened before. Uh, there are uh, there are several very important cases that are likely to come before the court maybe a year from now and i'll just tell you about them in like just very very briefly there's there are two state law cases one in texas and one in florida both states passed uh tough new rules trying to prevent um uh, social media companies from uh moderating a conservative speech basically and um and both of those cases got appealed and what ended up happening is that uh, one uh, one federal appellate court uh, upheld the Texas law, and another federal appellate court uh, basically struck down the Florida law, uh, which, by the way, the two laws look very similar. And so it seems likely that at some point, maybe a year from now, um, the court is going to grant cert and review those cases and settle this question. And that's a real, there's some real risk that at that point we could get real changes in Section 230. Now, I'd also note, by the way, there's tons of legislation that's proposed in Congress. I'm trying to fix 230, but the two sides, all they kind of agree on is that it's broken. They can't agree on how to fix it. 
Um, so I don't think we're going to get a legislative fix. So bottom line, I think this week's hearings were kind of a win. Um, I will leave you one last thought on this, which is uh, a lot of the discussion um, around Section 230, particularly on, on Tuesday's uh, the, uh, and Tuesday's testimony was about whether algorithms are speech. And if you think about, you know, we were talking about this, this comes back to AI really, is um, like if, if, if someone says, uh, if they create an algorithm that says, here's what you should watch next, right? Like on YouTube or on whatever platform, um, is that speech that's protected by 230 or not? Um, and, uh, and there's, there's tremendous debate about that, but if you can't protect algorithms with section 230, that creates a nightmare scenario where companies will be liable for proposing anything they propose to you, right? Like, you know, like you're looking, imagine, imagine you went to YouTube and the only way you could find anything was just to watch in order, whatever came up next. Um, chronologically, right. it would seem, it would seem to destroy the underpinning of the internet. Right. Or you're going to watch Netflix based on whatever show was most recently added. Um, that's probably not a good solution. Um, so we're going to get a, expect to read a lot and hear a lot about like whether algorithms are speech and whether they're covered by or protected by Section 230. Um, there's a lot to go on this. It's a complicated topic, admittedly, uh, but it's a really important one. I mean, it could really um, there's literally billions, if not trillions of dollars at stake in, um, in how this is resolved. Well, Eric, I think you better get a legal degree before next year. <laughs> it sounds like you're well on the way there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for explaining all of that I'm today. Glad. Thanks for being on top of it. So we are out of time today, but I want to thank you for all your comments and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the subject is energy and chemicals. Denton Sinkograna, chief oil analyst at Opus, and Kathy Hall, executive director of global petrochemical products at Opus, will take a look at the energy and chemical markets in an installment of Opus Energy Insights. Opus, like Barron's, is a unit of Dow Jones. Thank you again, Eric, and thank you to our listeners. Stay well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.